So listen to me. If you, are, if you love Christ, if you profess faith in Christ, if you trust in Christ, if you are a disciple who's denied him or herself, taken up his cross, and followed after Jesus, meaning a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, then hear me this morning. You, no matter who you are, are called to be a servant to all people. You are a servant to your brothers and sisters in your most holy faith, and you are a servant to those without Christ. Yes, you and I are servants even to the unsaved. Remember what Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesian believers in Ephesians chapter 6. He said, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This world that we are traveling through on our way to our heavenly home, to our eternal city, is populated by people who are ensnared to and deceived by the lies of Satan. And it is our task during our short sojourn here to do what the Apostle Peter wrote, to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And this is something the Apostle Paul did during his ministry. Just after Paul speaks about our battle being against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, he asks the Ephesians to pray for him while he is in prison. That in the midst of the spiritual battle, Words may be given him in opening his mouth boldly to proclaim the gospel for which he is an ambassador in chains that he may declare it boldly as he ought to speak. Now why would Paul pray something like that? Because he recognizes that while he might be locked up in an earthly prison, the reality is that the battle he finds himself embroiled in is not against the prison guards. It's not against the government but it's against the spiritual forces, the wicked, evil, demonic realm holding those involved in his imprisonment captive to sin and death. The Apostle Paul asked the Ephesians to pray for him while he was in prison that he might courageously proclaim the gospel to those who had imprisoned him. Paul understands something that I think we must understand that his earthly life, his earthly comforts, his earthly rights are not, were not more valuable, are not, were not more important than the unsaved in his life and in his presence hearing the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ preached to them. And the same is true for you and I. Your earthly life, my earthly life, is not more important than the unsaved people hearing the gospel from you through you. And this is an important point for us to get grasp and to recognize because oftentimes we can get confused, right? We can get confused in the battle against the cosmic powers. And instead of focusing on that fact, we can start fighting against the world that we're called to preach the gospel to. 
It's our task, it's our mission, it's our call in this world to point the world to the light of the world. To point the world to the living water, to the bread of life, to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ recognizes this is why you are here. This is your mission on earth if you are a child of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your purpose on earth is to glorify God. Your mission on earth is to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ, the good news, so that others might glorify the Lord Jesus alongside you. And so in our text this morning, we encounter Christ teaching the disciples to avoid needlessly and unnecessarily offending the world. To avoid needlessly placing barriers or hindrances in the way of this world hearing the gospel message from our lips. If there is going to be an issue, if there is going to be offense taken, it will be offense at the gospel itself. Because we know, the text tells us, the gospel itself is the stench of death to those who are perishing and the sweet fragrance of life to those who are being saved. This is what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 2 when he said, we, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. This is you in this world. To some, you will stink like death. To others, you will be the sweet fragrance of life. The gospel, the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is the only issue in our service to this world. We speak and we proclaim this gospel content to let it and it alone offend. We must not let any lesser thing sidetrack us. We must be diligent to remove all unnecessary and needless offenses to the world and to each other in order to more effectively be the aroma of Christ in this world. That we might have more effectively be the, the vocal mouthpieces of God among a perishing world. That they might hear the call to repent of their sin, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. But before we apply all of this, let's explore the context and the history of the text so that you can understand why I'm saying all of this. In order to more greatly understand the rather humongous surprise in this text. So as we've been working through Matthew, one of the things that we should recognize is that Matthew records a number of Peter-centric episodes that are unique to Matthew's gospel account. They're recorded nowhere else. Events and interactions that focus specifically on Peter that are not recorded in any other gospel. For example, you've probably heard or read about that time when Jesus walked on the water and called Peter out onto the water with him. When Peter called out as he saw Jesus walking on the water in Matthew 14, 28, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out on the water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and then he saw the wind and he saw the waves and he was afraid and he started to sink and he cried out to the Lord, Lord, save me. And Jesus did just that. That's what Jesus does, right? He took him by the hand and rescued him. And this chapter in Peter's life is recorded only by Matthew. And again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke 
all record Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But it's only Matthew who records the response of Jesus to Peter's confession. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And now, as we come to our text this morning, once again, we encounter another unique Peter-focused chapter recorded only in Matthew's Gospel. And it's a quite interesting account, isn't it? Jesus told Peter to go to the sea, to cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when that fish comes up, you open its mouth, and there's a shekel. Now, our focus will probably be on the fact that there was a shekel in a fish's mouth, right? We'll focus on the more miraculous aspect of the text, but there's so much more going on here. That's kind of the bottom rung of what the, the, the marvelous truths being taught in this text. This particular event touches on a subject everybody loves to talk about. Taxes. Something Matthew, the tax collector, might himself possess a heightened awareness of and sensitivity to. It is a theme that all of us love to consider, especially around April. However, this issue of taxes is a springboard to even more important motifs being revealed in this text. For example, this text is a clear witness to the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. This text also points us and, and encourages and exhorts the sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus Christ to avoid any and all needless offense in and to the world as his representatives. And I want you to hear that word clearly. Needless offense, unnecessary offense. We are the representatives whose primary role and calling in this world is, as the Lord Jesus ends, uh, or as Matthew ends his gospel saying, to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything Christ has commanded. And as we explore this text, we're going to touch on all of these subjects. And the text begins in verse 24. When they came to Capernaum. So as we enter into this particular text here, we are entering into the final six months of Jesus' earthly life. And there's going to be a marked shift from this point forward, from Jesus spending time with the crowds, healing them, ministering to them, driving demons out of them, to an increased focus on teaching the disciples and instructing the disciples. Here, Jesus and the disciples return to Capernaum, a city they have not been to for a while, a city they have not visited in a, in a long time as they'd been traveling through numerous towns and neighborhoods. Just, if you just take a look at the last few chapters in the gospel, you'll see that they've been to Tyre and to Sidon and the district of Caesarea Philippi. And so now they come back to Cap Capernaum after descending the mountain after the transfiguration and after the regrouping of all the disciples. Now, they go to Capernaum, and Peter lives in Capernaum. When Jesus called Peter, we see in Matthew 8, 5 and 8, 14 that Peter's home is in this city. And so once Peter arrives to his home city, he was immediately met by tax collectors, as we read in verse 24. Look at it again. When they came to Capernaum, 
the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? So you see there's a tax there, a two drachma tax. Now what is this two drachma tax? In order to kind of understand the surprise of this whole text, uh, we need to understand what this tax is and the history of it. This is a tax that had been instituted by the Lord himself way back in the days of the Exodus. It was instituted or instituted by the Lord for the upkeep and the support of the temple. We read about it first in Exodus chapter 30, verses 12 to 16. So I'm going to quote this at length, so if you want to move back to Exodus chapter 30 uh, in your Bibles, feel free to do so. Starting in verse 12, we read this. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Verse 14. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives... You shall, make, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and you shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. So this is the installation or the institution of this tax that we're referring to here in our text. When it came to the actual construction of the tabernacle and the construction of the temple and the sacred objects that were used in the temple. It was the voluntary offerings of the people that ensured, that paid for it all. We read this in Exodus 25. You'll see this maybe up here in your text as well. In Exodus 25, we read this in verses 1 to 7. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. So the Lord called for an offering for the creation or the, the, the construction of the tabernacle, and the, peop, the hearts of the people of Israel moved them to supply everything necessary for the construction of the tabernacle. But now the tabernacle is constructed. Now the temple has been constructed. And in order to maintain it and to upkeep it, the Lord instituted this temple tax. Or as the collectors in Matthew 17, 24 call it, the two drachma tax. Now the set amount of the tax was half a shekel, an amount that remained the same regardless of the financial position of the giver. Whether you were rich or whether you were poor, half a shekel was given. Perhaps it was a reminder that they, that we, are all in equal need of redemption and atonement. And that every single individual member of the household of God is responsible and shares equally in the maintenance of God's house. Whether you are rich, whether you are poor. 
And note that the offering is called a ransom to make atonement for your lives. And it did so by bringing the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord. When they brought the half-shekel tax, it brought the people to remembrance before the Lord. And so for this reason, every person over 20 years of age was required to bring in the offering. And when were they required to do it? This is very important that we know this. Whenever the people of Israel were numbered in a census. So this tax was collected during this time whenever the people of Israel were numbered in a census. And this tax reminded people of the Lord's rule over the nation, his redemption of the nation from enslavement in Egypt, and it signaled one's dedication to serving the Lord by the financial support of the dwelling place. So you see, the offering here had no set timing, except for when the people were numbered in a census. It wasn't a regular offering given at any specific time in the year. In fact, the next time that we hear about this offering in Scripture is in, during the reign of King Joash, a long time after the Exodus. After it, we see it in 2 Chronicles 24, after the six-year reign of a woman named Athaliah in Judah. She was the mother of the wicked king Ahaziah, who after he was killed... We read in 2 Chronicles 22.9 that the house of Ahaziah had no, no one able to rule the kingdom. And so his mother usurped the throne in Judah. And the sons of this wicked woman, we read in 2 Chronicles 24.7, had broken into the house of God and had also used all of the dedicated things of the house of the Lord for the Baals, meaning for the purpose of idolatry. And so when she was put to death for her treachery, Joash ascended to the throne of Judah and he decided to restore the house of the Lord. And so he made a proclamation in 2 Chronicles 24, verses 9 to 10. He made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to bring in for the Lord the tax that Moses, the servant of God, laid on Israel in the wilderness. And all the princes and all the people rejoiced and brought their tax and dropped it. That's quite wonderful, isn't it? The people are taxed, and look at their response. They rejoiced. Because with that offering money, 2 Chronicles 24, 13, we read that those who were engaged in the work labored, and the repairing went forward in their hands, and they restored the house of God to its proper condition and strengthened it. And with it were made utensils for the house of the Lord, both for the service and for the burnt offerings, and dishes for incense and vessels of gold and silver. Now, centuries later, centuries, hundreds and hundreds of years later, after Israel's captivity and return to Jerusalem, due to the economic difficulties of trying to reestablish themselves in Jerusalem once again, Nehemiah took it upon himself, and the people of Israel took it upon themselves, as we read in Nehemiah 10, they took upon themselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. So notice what happened here. The amount of the offering was reduced from a half shekel to one-third of a shekel for everyone because of the, the post-exile financial difficulties. But now, instead of this tax being levied whenever there was a census, it became a yearly obligation. 
They voluntarily entered into the payment of this one-third shekel tax. However, over time, Israel's leadership reinstituted the full half-shekel mandate, but also kept Nehemiah's annual obligation. Isn't that the way it always goes? Meaning that Jewish leadership in the days of Jesus now expected each Israelite over 20 years of age to pay one half-shekel per year to maintain the temple. And because every Israelite was expected to pay the tax, as Jesus and the disciples came to Capernaum, the tax collectors immediately come to Peter and ask him, does your teacher not pay the tax? See, the tax was customarily given in in the springtime, but according to the timeline here of Jesus' life and ministry, we are now approaching fall. And it's hard to tell what the motivation of the collectors is here. They could be very well seeking to slander Jesus. Perhaps they'd heard a rumor floating about that Jesus didn't pay, and so they came to seek clarity. Maybe they wanted to know if Jesus kept the laws that had been instituted by, for Israel in the Scriptures. Or was Jesus a number, uh, one of the number of Jews that had started to refuse paying the tax because the temple had become increasingly corrupt over the years? Without knowing the tone in which the question is asked, it's hard to understand or to, to recognize what their motivation is. It could be that they were simply doing their job. But Peter, without any hesitation, immediately answered their question, yes, yes. Perhaps it's because he's watched Jesus pay the tax in the past. Or perhaps it's because he knows the high regard Jesus has for the law of God. You remember back in Matthew 5, when Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of, these least, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, when the tax collectors came to Peter, it's clear that Jesus wasn't with him. Jesus, it seems, has been resting at Peter's house. So when the exchange concludes... And as Peter comes to the house, you see that in the text there, right? In verse 25, when he, that's Peter, came into the house, most likely his own house, Jesus spoke to him first. Meaning, Jesus already knew about the incident. Without needing to be told, in his omniscience, he already knew what was on Peter's mind. And he anticipated Peter's opening up of a conversation about the temple tax. And so Jesus speaks first saying to Peter in verse 25, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? This question that Jesus asks is, is designed to teach a very important lesson. The royal line, the household of a king, is exempt from the payment of taxes. An earthly example Jesus uses to teach a spiritual truth. But let's explore the question a little bit more before we get to the spiritual truth. Peter probably was wondering how they would pay the temple tax. We know that the Son of Man, Jesus said, has no place to lay his head. 
Jesus came and started speaking to him and said, you know, in essence, as you wonder about the temple tax and paying it, Peter, I want you to, I want you to consider something. I want you to think about the way taxation works. What do you suppose? From whom do the, king, do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? Now, the word toll here refers to indirect taxes, taxes levied on goods and services. Our closest equivalent here in Canada might be the HST. It's an indirect tax which, we, which both our provincial and federal governments, uh, by which the provincial and federal governments tax the products we buy and the services we uh, pay for. So if you go out and you purchase a bag of chips, you pay some tax. If you go out and you buy a car, you pay some tax. If you enlist a service like lawn care or a duct cleaning professional, you pay some tax. This is the toll that is being referenced here. The word tax refers to direct taxation. Tax collected from the individual directly. Each each individual Israelite here was expected to pay one half shekel temple tax. And they were also called, expected by the Romans who sent their own tax collectors to pay taxes to Rome as well. Our closest equivalent today might be income tax as we as individuals pay directly to the governing authorities. And so Jesus asked Peter, from whom do the kings of the earth take such tolls and taxes? Do they take them from their own sons? Do they take them or collect them from their own royal households? Or do they collect them from their subjects, their citizens, the strangers who populate their domains, from those who are of non-royal bloodlines? And the answer is clear. Now, when Peter speaks of the kings of the earth, we have to recognize that he is speaking of the general systems of government in his own day. The general systems of government in the ancient world The kingdoms of the ancient world were not democratic, as we understand the term. They weren't constitutional republics or constitutional monarchies. And even if they might have called themselves such, like some of the countries in our world today do, adding the word democratic into their country's names, even if they called themselves such, it was simply for show. Instead, the kingdoms of the ancient world that Jesus is referring to here, they were thoroughly and oftentimes brutally autocratic, despotic dictatorships ruled by kings, ruled by emperors, and ruled by pharaohs. And in many cases, these kings and emperors saw themselves as divine. They saw themselves as godlike figures, and the people over whom they ruled were nothing but serfs and peons to do with as they pleased. And these kings, in order to maintain their grip on power, in order to pay the militaries that ensured their continued reign, in order to continue themselves and their families living in the lap of luxury, imposed taxes, in many cases, crushingly oppressive taxes upon their citizens. Not upon their sons, upon their citizens. And in asking Peter this question, he asked Peter to simply look out at the world and use your common sense. From whom do the kings of the earth gather their tolls and taxes? From their own households or from every other household in their domain? And Peter, a man who understands taxation, being himself taxed by Rome and by the temple, said, from others. You see that in 26, right? Or 25. From others. 
Kings don't tax themselves. Kings don't tax their own families. Kings don't tax members of the royal family. They're exempt from taxation. And look at Jesus' response to Peter's answer. Then the sons are free. This is one of those awesome texts that sometimes gets overlooked. Because this short statement packs a theological punch. It is true that the kings of the earth don't collect taxes from their own royal households. The ruler's family is exempt from such, such taxation. And if that's the case, how much more is the Son of God himself exempt from paying the temple tax? Seeing as the temple is his father's house. As part of the capital T, capital H, capital E, the royal family, Jesus had no obligation to pay the temple tax because the temple was, after all, built to honor him. It was built for his praise. He is the Lord of the temple, as he said in Matthew 12, verse 6. He is greater than the temple. And Peter only recently identified Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now here, Jesus is making this, most, this same most towering announcement. I am the Son of the living God, and for this reason, I am exempt from the payment of the temple tax. And not only am I exempt from the payment of the temple tax, but so are everyone in me. We too are members by adoption into the royal family and are therefore the sons that are free. This is both a clear announcement of the identity of Christ as the royal son of God, but it also speaks to the fact that we who trust in him are heirs as well. We who trust in Christ are no longer under the old covenant, but we are under the new, which means that certain aspects of the old covenant system no longer apply to us because they've been fulfilled in and by the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a reason that you and I no longer offer the sacrifices prescribed by the Old Testament. It's because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is a reason we're no longer required to pay the temple tax or to make annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. As sons and daughters, we are free. As sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, we are heirs of the riches of his glorious inheritance. Now, I can imagine some of you in here saying, where is he going here? We've been talking about taxes, and Jesus said he doesn't have to pay the tax. Uh-oh, I am sensing something coming. In a rather shocking twist in our text, look at what Jesus said next. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that Give it to them for me and for yourself. That's an unbelievably shocking twist in this narrative. Jesus has just said, I don't have to pay the tax. I am the royal son, exempt from the tax. The father will not tax his own son. And yet here is Jesus saying, in order to avoid, however, in order to avoid scandal, 
That's what this word here, offense, means. Scandal. In order to avoid tripping them up, angering them, shocking them. The them here meaning the kings of the earth, the temple tax collectors, those in authority, along with the general populace. In order to avoid the unnecessary and needless provocation, the needless initiation of dissensions, arguments, or uncalled for divisions, let us pay the tax we are exempt from paying. I want you to ponder this for a second. Is there anyone in history, in the history of humankind, who could claim any right, any privilege, any exemption as convincingly and as authoritatively and as correctly as our Lord Jesus Christ could? The answer to that question is no. As we've already noted, the temple that sent out the tax collectors was his father's house. Jesus is himself, the Christ, the, son of the, the, the only son of the living God, and so exempt from paying taxes to a temple constructed to worship him. Along with this, Jesus, the one greater than the temple, would soon, by his sacrifice, render all, sa- all temple worship and sacrifice obsolete by the offering of, him, of himself. And even more, as we get to Matthew chapter 24, Jesus told the disciples of the rapidly approaching day when the temple would be physically destroyed. You remember it? When the disciples were pondering and wondering about the majesty of the buildings, Jesus said to them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And this because Jesus will offer himself the perfect, spotless Lamb of God will suffer at the hands of men, be killed and raised up on the third day. This is the perfect sacrifice to which every other tabernacle and temple sacrifice pointed. The sacrifice of Christ is the sacrifice for which all other sacrifices were merely rehearsals, preparing the nation to recognize that the, the once and for all offering of the Lord Jesus Christ that deals with once and for all, with humanity's sin problem. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath down to the very bottom. He laid down his own life on the altar that is the cross in our place as our substitute, and in so doing, brought the necessity of the tab- temple and its function to an end. And not only that, but the very temple to which these taxes were about to be paid had, by the time of Jesus, been corrupted in so many ways. Those who oversaw temple worship and propriety were the very whitewashed tombs that Jesus had chastised and rebuked over and over and over again in his gospel. Under their dishonorable and underhanded governance, the temple, which Jesus said shall be called a house of prayer in Matthew 21, 13, was turned into what Jesus called a den of robbers in Matthew 21, 13. These religious leaders had transformed the temple from its intended purpose of worship into a money-making machine, an economic enterprise. They set up tables for the money changers to profit from the exchange of foreign money because you couldn't pay the two drachma tax in drachmas. You had to bring the drachmas to the money changers who would exchange it for a shekel for a small fee because the temple offerings could only be made with Jewish coins. Not only that, but they set up tables to sell pigeons for sacrifices and for any who would go to the temple to pray. The whole scene looked and sounded more like a bazaar, more like a flea market than a place to commune with the Lord in prayer and worship. 
You could well imagine why a growing number of Israelites, even in this day, wondered, should I pay the, the, the shekel tax or the drachma tax to such a corrupt establishment? A question you've probably no doubt heard yourself or maybe even asked yourself. In regards to the payment of taxes to corrupt governments, using those money to support and propagate wickedness. The taxes paid by the Jewish populace to the temple were often misappropriated. It would seem that humanity rarely, if ever, change, if ever changes, does it? It would seem that humanity and human leadership repeats the same sinful errors over and over and over and over again. One doesn't have to look too hard to see similar things occurring in our own world. In answer to this particular question, one pastor writes in reference to this text and the subject of taxes, saying this, the general quote, the general principle derived from this account is clear. A believer is obligated to fulfill his duties as a citizen of this world. Although his ultimate and eternal citizenship is in heaven and the governments of men are all in varying degrees of corruption, while he remains on earth, he is also under obligation to human government. Except when it would cause him to disobey God directly, he is bound by divine law to be subject to human law. So this particular pastor sees this as the central point of the text. Uh, while that is a general application of the text, I don't see it as the, as the main general principle. But it is a principle we can derive we can see in the text that even though temple taxes were collected by and given to a temple that had, in Jesus' own words, become a den of robbers, and that money was quite often pilfered in a, and used inappropriately, even though that money was used to prop up a system of religion that burdened people and turned the temple away from its intended purpose, Jesus, rather surprisingly, still paid the tax. So you see, Jesus, exempt from the tax by virtue of his being God's one and only son, Jesus, knowing that the temple would soon be obsolete and irrelevant, and even more, raised to the ground, still paid the temple tax. You see that, right? Why? And this, here is the crucial point of the text. Here is the general concept that Jesus is modeling for his disciples and now for you and I. The principle of avoiding needless offense. The principle of avoiding needless, unnecessary offense in and to the world. Jesus made it clear throughout his ministry that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he would not create or set down any needless hindrances to the good news. And again, I want you to be sure to hear that word. We're talking about needless unnecessary offenses. Jesus took great pains, actually, throughout his earthly ministry to ensure that he didn't anger and inspire hostility from the peoples for needless and inconsequential reasons. He took great pains to make sure that, to make certain that only things that, the only things people might be angered with in his life were related directly to his obedience to God's will and word in the world. To his ministry labor in the world. And this principle we see spoken of in Scripture. This payment of the tax that Jesus gives here, it's a very one 1 Corinthians 9 type moment. Remember, we hear from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 that it was his right to reap material things from the Corinthian believers because of his spiritual labors among them. 
But he says in 1 Corinthians 9, we did not make use of that right, but instead, and listen to this, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. The Apostle Paul set it down for us in the clearest of terms. Listen to 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, a very well-known text. Though I am free from all, in the same way that Jesus was free from the temple tax payment, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I have become as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win some of the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. You see, Paul's entire life revolved around the preaching of the gospel to everyone he could. And a major component of his missionary work was clearing off the road any and all obstacles and hindrances in the path of the gospel message that might be placed there by him. If anything was going to offend the sensibilities of the people to whom and among whom he ministered, it would be the gospel message itself and nothing else. This was the all-consuming passion of Paul's life, the gospel of the saving knowledge of Christ, the life-giving message of salvation freely offered to all by grace through faith in Christ. In all places, Paul sought to stand out first and foremost as God's man an ambassador for Christ, appealing to everyone around him to be reconciled to Christ. And so, for the greatest possible gospel ministry advantage, Paul shaped his life for maximum gospel impact. And so now, the question now goes out to you. To what extent and to what degree are you willing to shape and organize your life so as to serve others with the gospel and avoid unnecessarily offending the world we live in in order to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because you and I live in a world that if we listen to it, we might conclude that it's actually more important to be true to myself, right? That we should follow our heart If you're well acquainted with such ideas and if they've lodged themselves into your soul, you might be saying to yourself right now, surely I can't be expected to put myself out or to change who I am or to conform to the needs of other people. Surely you can't expect me to keep my opinions and thoughts that might needlessly offend and anger my fellow brothers in the world and create barriers and hindrances to their hearing and perhaps believing the gospel from my own mouth silent, right? I mean, I am who I am, and if people don't like it, that's their problem, isn't it? Well, if Jesus and Paul are any example, actually, that's your problem. If you're one of those people that say, I am who I am, and that's it, and if you don't like it, lump it, you are the problem. You are, you are who you are is the problem. Because all throughout Scripture, let me tell you something, you are not commanded to be more like you. You are the problem. You are not called to be more of who you are. What does Scripture repeatedly command us? Be more like Christ. Imitate Christ. And as we learned a few weeks ago, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Christ.
You and I are indeed called to make ourselves servants to all for the sake of the gospel. We are indeed called to become all things to all people that by all means we might proclaim the glories of Christ to everyone around us. And we are called to do this all for the sake of the gospel. As Jesus made clear in Mark 10, when he said, he called the disciples and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave to, of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So with Jesus as his model, Paul, even though free, acted in that freedom by doing the most gloriously free thing you can do, imitating Jesus and becoming a servant to all. And why would Paul do such a thing? Because freedom, in our, sense of the wor- in our cultural sense of the word, is the ability to do, or the, ability or, or the ability or right to do whatever one wishes, whenever they wish, as they wish. But that's not our goal. That's not our task. That's not our mission. That's not our calling. And as much as we would like to make that our own selves, the primary goal of life, it isn't. That honor is reserved for the, for the salvation of souls and our maturing in faith. And so Paul freely put himself at the disposal of all for the sake of the gospel. Now listen, see the difference between Paul's view of freedom and ours. Freedom for us tends to focus in the direction of self-interest. What I want, when I want, how I want. But look at Paul. For Paul, freedom extends outward in the direction of concern for others, hearing and believing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If your sense of freedom is me, 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 you are in direct contradiction to the Apostle Paul. As he said, as Paul exhorted the Christians in Galatians 5, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Or, me, 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 me. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So listen. If you call yourself a Christian this morning, you profess the Lord Jesus Christ with your lips. And you don't care about the needless, unnecessary offenses you create. You don't care about the barriers you lay in the road to the gospel. You don't care about the warrantless hindrances to the gospel that you are scattering along the path. If the people in your life are so offended by your consistent and persistent prattling about the things of the earth, the things of an earth that is passing away, how can you be okay with that? I mean, seriously. How can any of us think that's okay? How can we be so vain and self-important so as to think ourselves justified in making it more difficult for someone to hear the gospel from our mouths because of our offenses, our needless offenses? Listen, you and I must know we're not playing a game of cards. We're not playing with coins here. We are engaged in and locked in a life-or-death struggle to see souls freed from enslavement to sin and death. So what are some of the needless obstacles that you have put in the way of your gospel mission? What are some of the things you talk about that you make sure everyone knows are you love and you, you're, you're concerned about? 
Things you are constantly repeating that make it difficult for your brothers and sisters to mature in faith or to hear any sort of discipling from you. What makes it difficult for the world to see the gospel in you because you're so needlessly offending everybody. What are some of the things that you do that cause needless offense that create barriers for a full, attentive hearing of the gospel from, by the world from your mouth? We have been so conditioned by a selfish, narcissistic, self-idolatrous culture and society that we think it's a good thing to be so individually and personally expressive. That everyone needs to know our thoughts on every single thing. And if they don't like it, tough noogies for them. But listen, you and I aren't that great. You're not that special. I'm not that special. Jesus didn't come to save you because you're supremely special and your opinions on everything are wonderful. Jesus came to save us because he's great, because he is special, because he is gracious, and he is merciful. He saved you. If you're saved here today, he saved you because you desperately needed salvation because you were a dirty, filthy, rotten sinner alienated from God, darkened in heart, and futile in mind. But boy, oh boy, is he good. Don't we want to tell others that same message? Don't we want others to hear that from our lips? We are called to make disciples. We are called to be all things to all people so that we might win them to Christ. However, I could see that if we put ourselves in Christ's situation here, knowing all we know, knowing all he knows about the temple, we might respond quite differently, right? I'm not paying that temple tax. I'm not paying to such a corrupt establishment. And if the tax collectors came up to us as they did to Peter, we'd probably, based on what I see about our culture today, we'd probably give them an earful about everything they're doing wrong. How dare you ask me about the tax? Do you know that the tax pays for this and it pays for that and it's going here and it's going there? Tax is theft. It's unrighteous. I'm taking a principal stand. Then those tax collectors would go off and they'd spread the news. Did you hear the disciples of Jesus don't pay the temple tax? Did you hear about their rabbi? He doesn't pay the temple tax? I think those guys are all about money. I don't think they really care about the temple or the work of God in our midst. And then they become known as the temple tax avoiders rather than gospel men. And then they get dragged in front of the magistrates and they say, and the, and, the, and the Christians would be like, you know what, I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm here because of the gospel. And the magistrates would be like, no, you're here because you didn't pay the temple tax. And you'd think you're doing something, temple, something wonderful. You'd think you're heroic and courageous. You'd think you're known as a gospel man, but you're just seen as a tax refuser. Needless, warrantless, unnecessary offense. If you become known for anything, anything other than being an ambassador for Christ who calls out for people to be reconciled to God, if anything else becomes what you or I are known for primarily, it's time to imitate our Lord and start serving rather than being served. It's time to obey the exhortation of the Apostle Paul that we, through love, serve one another, both fellow saints and the, those in the world in need of hearing the gospel of salvation. 
This is an exhortation Paul repeatedly makes to the Corinthian believers. 1 Corinthians 10.32, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or the church of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, speaking of his ministry labors, he said, we put no obstacles in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions and hardships and calamities and more. And so, to pay the tax, Jesus told Peter, go to the sea, cast a hook, Take the first fish. When you open its mouth, you're going to find a shekel. Take that shekel. Pay the tax for both of us. Each and every one of us must always remember that it is Christ who provides us with everything we possess. And even the money that is used to pay the tax, Peter's temple tax and his own, was supplied by the sovereign power, authority, and grace of Jesus. He miraculously provided this shekel for the purpose of paying the tax in order to avoid needless offense. And in the same way, never forget that everything you and I possess is good gifts from our gracious God. He provides it all for the sake of our witness to and among an unsaved world. And instead of getting upset when you believe that the world is trying to take it or exact it from you, instead of laboring to hold on to all of your earthly riches with a white-knuckle ferocity, remember this. God has given it to you for his service and use it all for the sake of, gospel, of the gospel, remembering that he owns it all, he gives it as he wishes, and if it needs be, he will supply you, even if it means going to catch a fish and having the money in its mouth. In closing, remember your mission. Always remember your mission. And filter everything in life through that mission. As you live the few years of your life here in this temporary world, that is, along with all of its desires passing away, remember the mission. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And saints, avoid needless offense. Father, we praise you and we thank you for this word of yours. We thank you that you are persistently in your word reminding us about our mission because it's so easy for us to get sidetracked. It's so easy for us to, to aim ourselves against the wrong thing and consider that to be our enemy. Father, I pray that you would always help us to remember that it's not the people here that are the enemy. It's the one who enslaves the people here that is our enemy. And I pray that you would always help us to remember that we are fighting a spiritual battle against spiritual powers. And our role and mission in this world is to free those who are held captive to these cosmic powers to see, by the preaching of the gospel, to see the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. I pray that our whole lives would be dedicated to proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, and that we would do everything possible to ensure that we have the widest possible unhindered birth to be able to fulfill that mission. Help us to organize our lives in such a way that the only thing that offends in our life is your gospel. We pray that you would save so many people through our witness, through our faithfulness, and through our proclamation. Lord, glorify yourself here by the faithful witnesses at Winona Gospel Church. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.